Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome back Professor Emeritus Jan van Hove. He has so many stories. It's absolutely amazing. And if you haven't listened to the others yet, we will have links with this podcast so you can listen because also the stories really connect so as always, sit down or have a nice walk or grab some tea or whatever it is you love to do when you're listening to a podcast and enjoy all the wonderful stories by Professor Jan van Hove. In my last podcast, I told you about the history of the Arnhem Zoo chimpanzee colony, how it started in the mid-70s and turned out to be a great success although we had our doubts in the beginning whether it would go right, because the animals initially had conflicts and so on. But we knew and realized that it needed some time for them to adjust to one another and to form a harmonious social community, which in the end they did. And eventually with three new males, it became a very nice, one would say, almost a reproduction of a natural community as they occur in the wild. It was a great comfort for us, I think, for my brother and me, when on a certain occasion, Jane Goodall came to the zoo and she was very curious to see our Arnhem Zoo sympathy colony because there had already been some publications. And she stood there a whole day in our observation stand and watching them, our community, watching them intently. And she said, it is as though I look at a natural community of chimpanzees. We see them behave in a natural way. And eventually she added, I'm not sure where I would like to be if I were a chimp. Would I like to be in the wild where people try to, uh, where people hunt us occasionally, where there are straps where we can get into uh, all kinds of troubles, where there is disease, polio has been introduced and all kinds of things. Or in a well-kept zoo, not a traditional zoo, but a zoo where they keep the animals in a wide open environment where they can go and choose to meet one another or to go into another part of the area where they can be out of sight of the others and where if they are ill, there is medical treatment and where there is indeed also no shortage of food. But where they also take care that the animals are not bored, that there is things to do to explore in the natural environment no, I would say in the artificial natural environment where they have to live. And that is something that has been a concern of zoo people for a long time. I mean, in the classical situation, you saw a couple of chimpanzees in a, uh, well, I would say almost in a huge parrot cage. <laughs> where they sat with three or four, or perhaps a little bit more, together in a small cramped environment. Um, and where boredom is a real issue. These are the chimps that 
paint with their feces on the walls that um, do all kind of crazy things. Sometimes quite amusing for the public. I remember in the London Zoo, there was a chimpanzee dick and um, he would, when there was a group of people standing in front of the cage, he would go to one of the metal slides and um, play these as drum, as a drum. And it was fascinating to see and to hear that. But you realize the poor animal, it was one of the few things it could do to, uh, to keep his mind a little bit busy. Anyway, Jane was fascinated and she thought, if I had a choice, I wouldn't mind to sit in a chimpanzee colony like yours in Arnhem if I were a chimp. And we found really comforted by that statement. It, we thought that was what we were aiming at, my brother and me. The colony has turned out to be also scientifically quite interesting. I have already told about our experiences with uh, male and female leadership in the club. Um, the, it was clear that the colony was a treasure for scientific research. And I got the opportunity in 1974 to have a student, his name was Franz de Waal, um, who had done a, a PhD with me in Utrecht. And he had been working on coalition behavior in crab-eating macaques. That was, a, was a, an interesting topic at the time. It was in a time when uh, there was a great interest internationally in ethological circles, uh, a great interest in aggression as a phenomenon. Lawrence had written his book on aggression and claimed that aggression plays an important role in the life of social animals, in regulating all kinds of things, that it is not necessarily the always the great evil it can become an evil, but it is also an instrument of correction in social life, in social groups, and keeping animals um, to normal and good, let's say, socially good behaviors. It can act as a punishment for deviating behaviors. So aggression is not the eternal evil. It can be, and it may be on occasions, and it may have been run out of hand. And then aggression is a really bad thing. But it also is a means for animals to keep a state of equilibrium in a theater in which they live, a theater of tensions, but also of affiliative tendencies. There is always this equilibrium. I have to take care of my own position and see that I keep upright and everything. But on the other hand, I have to live together with others. Social life is enormous compromise between self-interest and the interest of the community of which you take part. And if that community doesn't function, your functions are also damaged. So an individual animal living together with conspecifics has to see that its own interests are being safeguarded in that community. On the other hand, it depends on that community and its own well-being is dependent on the well-being of the community. That is to say, of the well-being also of the others that constitute that community. And this subject to which I will return in another podcast has uh, 
in the 80s and the 90s become a major topic in ecological research. How are social communities maintained and the dynamics of that? Anyway, it was clear that the Arnhem chimpanzee colony could play a role in this. Franz Waal studied coalition behaviors in a uh, colony of crab-eating macaques at Utrecht University, one of my experimental colonists in Utrecht. He did that as a PhD, and he was interested in coalition behavior. And in coalitions, you have this compromise about which I talked. Because why would you form a coalition? You would form a coalition if together with a partner, you can get a better and more dominant position in your social environment. That is, if you can't beat them alone, your rivals, you can find somebody to help you to beat your rivals. But why would somebody beat, help you in beating your rivals? What's in it for him, you could wonder. In other words, you form a coalition if together with the other, you help the other, but also there is something in it for you, you are better off. And this was the beginning of research in which we saw clearly that the interest of an individual animal is also the interest of others because it's in working together, in giving and taking, in giving and taking that you form a community that is, to the, that is to the benefit of the members involved. And if that doesn't work, the community explodes and there's hostility and individuals go apart. And that is not so in animal social communities as we found out, it's part of our human society constantly, continuously, that equilibrium between self-interest and the interest of the community in which you have to invest in order to keep that community healthy so that that community can deliver to you also the benefits that it has available. That is the eternal political battle also between fractions in politics that go for themselves and that are more socialistically oriented, if you want to call it that, etc. So the conflict between self-interest and the interests of the community. Well, France was at the beginning of that kind of research. When he studied coalition behavior in the uh, Utrecht crab-eating macaque uh, colony. And uh, in that colony, he noticed that animals can become dominant, usually not, uh, of course, because they are strong, because they are more powerful in the, as an individual, but also because they gain the support of others and let me put it quite anthropomorphically, but it is verifiable objectively. They get the support of others because these others feel with him, we are best off, we are better off. So let's support him. So Franz came to Arnhem in 74. And uh, I always consider this as one of uh, the best choices that I made in my career. Um, I was at the University of Utrecht. I was a professor there. I had to deal with all kinds of things. Oh, how much would I have loved to go to Arnhem and to study these chimpanzees myself? But that was not reconcilable with my role as a Utrecht professor. We're doing all kinds of things, teaching and the whole lot and the university business. Um, 
So I was happy to have an experienced young man, Franz, to take on the research of the Arnhem Zoo colony as a member of my research group. And he has made a tremendous success of it. He could continue with the experience that he had gained in Utrecht with studying coalition behavior in crab-eating macaques. Because at that moment, we had in Arnhem three adult males and a few young adolescent males. And the three adult males, although they were, so to speak, brethren, they came from a, a group where they almost grew up together. But nevertheless, when the three became integrated in that Arnhem Zoo colony, the question was, who is going to be the dominant? And France could follow in the years that uh, were to follow at that moment, he could follow the development of the relationships bet between these mills and of each of these mills with the rest of the, of the, of the colony in what made a certain male successful in obtaining the alpha position in the group, the leadership position in that group. And to cut a long story short, the result of all that study, and he published this in a book that has become his first book and has become world famous also, chimpanzee politics, in which he painted and gave a beautiful picture of the whole development of these dominant squirrels. He could show that the successful dominant male is a male that rewards the ones who help him to be, become the dominant, his coalition partners. But also, he has to be accepted by the rest of the group. If he is not a nice male, if he is not kind and not very nice to the rest of the group, although on occasions he may be, of course, very angry and very dominant and very impressive and all that, and he may scare the others, but at other moments, he is a darling male. He, uh, he plays with the youngsters. He is a friend with the females, grooms them, and is being groomed, of course, because they then like him. Well, they have high regards of him, so to speak. They know his power, but they know also how to deal with him to keep him. Well, shall we say to keep him happy? Yes, why not? So that was um, the beginning of Franz's work at the Arnhem Zoo Chimpanzee Colony. Um, he studied conflicts, which there were, of course, in any nice society, there are also conflicts, sure, because there are youngsters and they tease the elderly and the females in the group they have the little envies and their relationship and jealousies and all that. And there is, of course, nice food that everybody would like to have, um, whereas the other one thinks, I want to have it too. Of course, there are conflicts. There are conflicts. But these animals live together in a society. And that was at the root of a very important discovery that Franz made while studying the group. He occasionally noted conflicts. And sometimes, well, chimpanzees are extroverts. So then they fight and they beat and they hit one another. But he noticed also that sometimes after a fight, two animals who had been in conflict with one another, 
were sitting at different sites in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the large area in the enclosure. And they were sitting there and they were scratching themselves, showing that they were not well at ease, scratching uh, behavioral unrest, movement unrest and all that. And that both rivals who had been querying were doing that. And then they looked at each other occasionally. And at one point, one of them ran to the other and they embraced one another. And then they sat together and groomed one another. And he said, what is this? This is remarkable. These animals have been in conflict. They have been aggressive to one another. And we know aggression is a behavior that alienates animals from one another because it drives the other away. It subordinates the other. It increases the social distance between these animals. And now what I see is just the opposite. I see the, the, the two rivals after one of them has defeated the other, they sit apart, both show behavioral unrest, and then one of them, and that may be the one who has lost, but most remarkably, it may also be the one that has won the conflict, goes over to the other, and they kiss one another, and they sit together, and they embrace one another, and they start grooming one another. By golly, what is this? This is completely contrary of what we expected in the case of an aggressive conflict. It has been a conflict and an aggressive conflict, but it ends well. And we called it reconciliation. This looks like reconciliation, as if they make it good again, they make well again. I remember France and I myself also had that experience when we talked at a social meeting about this, the first times we talked about this in the meeting and there were behavioral people sitting around there, ethologists and so on. And they listened to that and said, well, um, <laughs> aren't you anthropomorphizing a little bit too much? Reconciliation, come on. Reconciliation, that is something that happens in human societies, we know that. But these are just beasts. How do you know they're reconciled? So we said, well, we have to, to convince them. And I, for a start, said, I won't talk in a scientific meeting about reconciliation. I will talk about a PCAC, a post-conflict affiliative contact, because that is what I saw and what we see. After a conflict, post-conflict, we see an affiliative contact, a PCAC. France was very quick to abandon this term and to continue to talk about reconciliation. But I, for a while, talked about the PCSA, taking this term as, an, as a challenge, as an, as an invitation, if you want, to convince the cynics in the audience in meetings that a PCAC is a phenomenon that is in itself worth of being studied. And then you ask the normal questions that an ethologist asks and said, okay, what are the con conditions under which you see a PCAC occurrence? When is such an affiliative contact occurring after a conflict? Is it after all the conflicts? No, not necessarily. 
the conflicts which are not followed by a PCAC. What conflicts are followed? Well, conflicts between members of the group, social companions that have in other contexts have a very positive relationship with one another. And you see that the conflict is disturbing that relationship. They go apart. They can't approach each other anymore. They don't want to sit together. But that is frustrating for both of them because they had this beautiful relationship beforehand. And they are stressed, not because of the conflict itself, but also of the negative consequences of that conflict. The disturbance of their positive relationship. And that is what I restore. And that is what we could show, and what Franz also showed in his research, what we could show in following the interactions, the post conflict interactions of animals with different positions in the social network. So then we said, what we see is what we call reconciliation. And that is not an anthropomorphism, that is just a functional term for a fundamental process that occurs in animal societies. Nowadays, that is fully accepted. But it is, it is illustrative for a kind of criticism that we had to uh, we had to counter in the late 60s and the early 70s when there was very easily a uh, a kind of uh, well when was uh, that one was accused an acquisition an accusation of Anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism, that you simply transpose human emotions and human considerations, social considerations onto animals. Yes, you have to be careful because the behavior of animals and ourselves often do resemble one another. It doesn't automatically mean that it sprouts forth from the same, uh, let's say, subjective considerations and feelings. No, it doesn't mean that. You have to show that it does. But in doing that, we have become more and more convinced that fundamental emotional processes, social processes, are shared between humans and certainly between primate species that are most related to us. But not only that, since then, there have been a number of studies on other species that have shown that also in these species, if they live in social communities, where there is a mutual, mutual dependence of, uh, on one another, that we see processes of reconciliation after conflicts. That is, when the social harmony that is essential for their cooperation in a social group, for their living together and collaborating in warding off the evils of the outside world, and in finding in cooperation, finding food and all that, that in such societies you have to depend on one another and that it is essential that there are means to regulate conflicts, to see that the negative consequences of conflicts, which are unavoidable also in a harmonious society, you have conflicts, conflicts of interest that can. Uh, that can get serious, but that these have to be restored, that there has to be a tendency to keep harmony. Too. And this has been found not only in uh, 
in monkeys, in apes, but especially also in collaborative species like wolves. It has been shown in dogs. It has been shown remarkably even in animals such as, such as goats that live in a herd, but want to live in a herd. Everybody wants to belong to the herd because if you're going on your own, you're an easy prey. So keep together, tolerate one. Tolerance, tolerance in equilibrium with self-interest. Um, if you are in a plane and sitting there with your little children in an airplane, the captain will speak to you and say, when the red lights go on, you have to fasten your seatbelts. First, fasten your own seatbelt, then fasten the seatbelt of your children. Because your children can't fasten your seatbelt, but you can fasten theirs. Um, there's always this equilibrium. Well, you hope it is an equilibrium. It's an equilibrium with tension between what do I do to save myself? What do I do to save others um, to, uh, and to see that our community is intact? So this turned out to be one of the major issues that um, we studied in our Arnhem Zoo colony, especially how social harmony is maintained. So the study of reconciliation is one of the major things in the Arnhem Zoo studies because it's revealed the complexity of the social structure of these, uh, of these, well, we I say human-like animals in many respects. An important aspect of that was the role also of certain females in the group. Chimpanzees form a patriarchal society. It's male-dominated. Males are the nucleus of the group. And that is not the usual thing amongst primates, because most baboons and most macaques, they live in matriarchal societies where there are, is a dominant clan of females that are native to a certain society. They have been born in the society, in the social unit, the social group, in which they will eventually also die. They spend their whole life there. Males come and go, and they may become dominant in a, in, a, in a social community for a while, such as in baboons or in macaques, and be thrown out or turn to subordinate positions later on in their, in their career. That's different in chimpanzees, where it's the males that form the nucleus of the society. Females migrate in, sometimes with their youngsters, with their adolescent daughters, and they leave the group again. So they play, it seems, a less important role in the female society, although in many societies they can stay their whole life. Uh, Jane Goodall has given beautiful examples of that. It's a, a flexible system, but male-dominated. There's no doubt about that. In our Arnhem group, we had from the beginning, we had a female that well, took up a rather dominant position. I've sketched the episode in which she was with some of her female friends. She was the leading clan. She formed the leading clan of the Arnhem colony. 
and it took a while, and I've uh, told about this in my former uh, presentation, it took a while for the new arriving mills could really take over. But Mama, the matriarch, she remained in a very important position also since then. And she played that role in many respects. Um, she was also a kind of, um, of reconciliator in the group. Um, I'll give you one example that has also been described by Franz in his book. He has described all of these things in chimpanzee politics, but also in his later books, which had reconciliation and social harmony as their main topic. It is Franz who has put this on the scientific theater, this subject, social harmony and social tolerance and social cooperation. Um, when two of the males in the Arnhem group had a conflict, and they occasionally had, they would sit together, and we knew already this wasn't easy. They didn't like that, and it might end up in a reconciliation. But often, when that lasted too long, Mama would restore the relationship between the males. How? Well, the two males sitting far apart and each of them being stressed and scratching itself in all kind of nervous behaviors. Mama would go up to one of the males who was sitting there stressed and start grooming him. And so quietening him down. And then she would leave this male and walk up a distance farther on to the other male and start grooming him and quietening him down. And then she would move back to the first male and the second male would follow her. And in the end, she would sit there with the two males, both of them. She would groom both of them. The both, the both, the two groom, the two, sorry, the two males would groom mama and they would eventually groom one another and sit there and be reconciled. Mama was in a very important member in that group. Um, I was uh, fond of Mama, although she could be very mean also towards her female friends. Um, it's not all saints and all devils. It's these animals are both saints and devils at times. In that respect, they resemble the human species. Nothing human system is strange for them. Um, but I uh, liked Mama, and uh, I never went into the enclosure with the chimpanzees. That was in Arnhem, it was a matter of principle. Neither the keepers nor the veterinarians ever went in together with the animals. They couldn't do so. Anyway, I know precisely what would have happened if I had walked in some stupid mood into that large old field where the chimpanzees were living. They know me. They all of them know me and they greet me. When I came there during these many, many, many years, and they see me coming in the distance along the foot, public footpath, and one of them notices me, and I call them, they all come and, uh, and they would bark, and some of them will come to the ditch and greet me. So they know me, and I know for sure that they are not hostile to me. Why should they? Nevertheless, I wouldn't dare to go in with them. Although, well, I would perhaps there, but I wouldn't take the risk. We all know that Jane Goodall simply sat and gradually came to sit close to the chimpanzees 
of uh, that lived in uh, in Gombe, and they would eventually approach her and sit next to her, etc. So they are not hostile. Now, in Arnhem, the situation is different in so far that I'm quite sure the majority of the females in the group would probably accept me. And I have uh, evidence of that, that if they can, they would approach me and groom me, etc. The males, if I were to enter, would probably think a little bit different. They wouldn't be hostile, they would not be hostile, but they would say, oh, ha, there he is, that fellow that always stands at the other side of the ditch, that commands us, that, uh, that throws food of us, but also at us, but also he is in control of our lives and they manipulate us. They tell us, well, to go inside and then to go outside and then to go from one cage to another and things like that. There he is, that dominant chap. Let's see what he is worth if we meet person to person. If I were to go in there, I'm quite sure I would get a beating up, they would tear off some clothes of me, perhaps be a little bit, but they would behave as if they, you, uh, uh, we like you, but you, you are subordinate. Be sure of that. We will test you. So the animals, we may, sorry, let me put it differently. We made a principle we do not take any risks in the zoo. We do not want our keepers to take any risks with the animals. So we are not going into the cages with them unless it's absolutely necessary for veterinary reasons. We have to treat an animal and the vet has to go in and the keepers also to help, etc. Then, but not normally, not as to have a uh, uh, let's say, a sort of normal social uh, intercourse with them. But um, you can cut this a little bit out because I'm now a little bit hesitating and getting tired also a little bit. Um, so you cut this a little bit out. I take it up from here. So it's our principle not to familiarize too much with the chimpanzees. The chimpanzees have to familiarize with one another. They have to realize or to, to feel that their social companionship is in the social community of themselves. But that's beautiful, that's well said, but that's not done easily in practice. We interact with the chimpanzees. And I do too, and I can't resist interacting with them. And I occasionally, when the animals are in the inside enclosure, where they have a big sleeping hole, but also have a lot of individual cages where they can sit together with friends, with their close relatives, and sleep together with their close relatives. Um, um, I can sit because there are bars and I can lean against the bars and it can allow the animal to touch me. And some of the females will immediately start to groom me. Other females are a little bit mean and, and pinch me and pull my hairs and, and challenge me. But there are also those who sit there. I have pictures of one of the chimps, and I sit there, and she sits at the other side of the bus, and she, grow, she grooms my eyebrows and my whiskers. So she, I sit there, and I see these big chimpanzee fingers. Uh, she can reach through the bars with her whole arm, 
and she sits there and carefully grooms my my uh, what is it whiskers and she grooms my eyelashes and my eyebrow now that is a sign of utter confidence that she know that but it also is a test so i've ever, i've always seen it a test of confidence do i allow her to do that this chimpanzee if i was nervous at such a moment and i withdrew and i startled etc i know i would have damaged the relationship i would have destroyed it but if i can and i must confess i sometimes feel a bit anxious about this but i sit there with my face leaning against the bars the bars of the cage and there comes these big fingers and they move right in front of my eyes and i see them and they gently touch my eyes and my eyebrows and my eyelashes and i hear her lip smacking because chimpanzee on these occasions they do say lip smack and i know that this female is delighted of grooming me so i have to show delight in being groomed although i'm occasionally a bit nervous about it then you trust one another and you have full trust and with a female like mama i had that and also with some other females there's only one has been one occasion when i have uh, joined mama socially uh, in her cage um, of course there have been occasions when you helped the vet in treating an animal that had needed but then the animals were uh, sedated by with a sedation and there were but when i knew and we knew the keepers and the zoo people knew that mama was at her end was going to die she was very weak she couldn't easily live anymore in the social community the animals had respect for her in the sense that they treated her carefully but not always sometimes even though she was old and that was when she was about not 50 no she was 59 years old 59 year old chimpanzee is is looks old and she lost her teeth and so she uh, she moved more difficult and we also found that uh, uh, she had some uh, wounds she had been in fights where she was wounded etc uh, she had a broken rib that had healed badly but we never knew before because uh, animals in nature and, and animals in social groups have a tendency to conceal their weaknesses because if you show your weakness you are an easy victim for those who want to dominate you so keep up a straight face keep up a keep a stiff up and uh, do not show that you are weak so uh, mama had gotten her beatings during her life and the traces of that could still be seen anyway i went into the cage with mama when i knew that she would die in fact we have euthanized her because at a certain point we thought that it has there's no sense in keeping her isolated from the other animals because they wouldn't consider be as considerate as we were in realizing that it was the end uh, so we kept her apart to protect her i know all the chimps in the colony 
I know Mama very well because Mama also was the first to come to the ditch to greet me. And she always was enthusiastic when I showed up. And, uh, but I never went into her cage with her as a matter of principle. But when we knew that her end was near, that um, she was 59 years old and she was becoming very weak and she couldn't eat any more quite easily. Um, it, was, it was quite a sight to see her in these last days. And eventually we, know, we knew that she was suffering and that her end was near. And then I decided to say farewell to Mama. And I went into her night cage where she was sleeping on her own. And she was almost unconscious. She was lying in a, in a sleep, not uh, very aware. And I was sitting next to her and I, was, and I was starting to talk to her and stroking her, caressing her. And then at that moment, she suddenly, she looked up and suddenly saw me. And at that moment, she really got in trance and she started screaming, burn, baring her teeth and reaching out to me in a greeting. And she embraced me and I embraced her. It was as she was extremely glad that she saw me. And this was a very intimate moment. And the keeper was also standing in the cage. And I had brought my, my, my video camera with me to make last, uh, last recordings of Mama. And I handed over the video camera to the keeper and said, asked him, let it run, let it run, let it go and film whatever happens. And this film shows how mama embraces me, how she caresses me, how she taps me on the shoulder and on the head. And then after a while, she says goodbye and she goes to sleep again. She lies on her pillow. This film I put on YouTube. I didn't know what could go happen, what would, ha what would happen. In fact, this YouTube film went wild. It went wild all over the internet. I don't know. Um, I think at the moment is approaching 100 million views. You can't believe it. And the, and the, and the number of reactions I get daily on my mail from people who have watched the film. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. And it's especially amazing to see what the reactions are. And I still have the idea I'm going to systematically inventorize the type of reactions and to count how many there are, because there are different type of reactions. There is the abstract academic reaction. And that is the mill that sells me. I saw this physio and nobody now needs to tell me that animals don't have emotions because I'm convinced animals have emotions. I knew already a long time that animals have emotion because Darwin told us, although many behaviorists in science would deny this for a long time, but now everybody is convinced that it makes sense to talk about emotions. But be careful in not anthropomorphizing too much. Do it in a justified way. But there is a justification for that. They share many of our emotions. Their subjective world is like ours. Mama showed love to me attachment and the tremendous emotion of being there, united with her lifelong friend.
That is one reaction that says, okay, that's the academic one. Then there is the reaction that says, and I can tell you, 95% of the many, 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 many thousands of reactions that I have obtained on, uh, on, on, uh, on email, on YouTube, the majority, 95% is, Annie, did you see that film? I saw it. I couldn't stop crying. I've been crying all night. I had tears. Oh, this. And 95% of the emotions, of, sorry, of the reactions on this YouTube are of this type, of this type completely empathic and, um, and no scientific reserve, no distance taking. No, this is love. This animal loves him and he loves that animal. Okay. And then there is a tiny portion of emotion of, uh, of reactions. I must count this, but it's less, far less than 1% that says, what a horrible film, what a horrible scene, this monster, this teethless monster, because Manma at the end of her life had lost her front teeth altogether and she had difficulty in eating also. Um, this man, showing some fake affection to this monster, horrible. But I feel comforted in that 99 plus percent were of the emotional, the empathic type and uh, realized that yes, indeed, Animals share love and affection with one another. It's part of their life. It's also one of their main emotions. Also when they groom one another, when they meet a friend after a, a long separation. Who would doubt that? A small minority of, of, of less than 1%, I would tell them, and I would say to them, well, take a dog, keep a dog. If you don't believe that animals have emotions, that animals share love with you and with, 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 with one another, with people, take a dog next time. My next podcast will be on animals in zoos. This postcard has shown you that animals can be kept in a zoo in a way that is completely compatible with their natural tendencies and natural desires and can be of a sort, such a way of keeping, can be of a sort that is in harmony with their desires, their needs that they have in nature. So a full natural life. Not everybody is convinced of that, that the zoo can offer these conditions. And I must immediately say that there are many zoos in which for many of the species, these conditions are still not realized. Although in most, most zoos, there is a great awareness that this is one of the main challenges that zoos have to meet to give their animals a natural environment in which they can develop their natural behaviors and follow their natural inclinations to a large extent. Let me make that reservation immediately because we don't want to see and to have in a zoo zoos where you see animals predating, preying on zebras or antelopes. 
as you have in some zoos in the world where they offer live prey to their carnivores. Well, that's natural, isn't it? It's very natural. So that's what the lions want. So we give it to them. Well, that's an ethical question to which I want to return next time. Thank you. And the end of another wonderful story-filled podcast. Thank you so much, Professor Jan van Hove. At Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself, and of course, also support you in your other goals, such as conservation, education, and research. And everyone should have access to affordable, continued personal development. We want to do a big shout out, a huge thank you to all our current members. Animal Concepts is honored and delighted to support a global community who are connected together through three powerful platforms in one membership experience. And accessing simplified tools and practical resources has never been easier to our signature platforms, Practical Animal Welfare Science, which is all about animal well-being, One Care, which is all about human well-being, of course, in connection with animals, and of course, also the Earth Charter and the SDGs, together, well-being for everybody, peoples, animals, the greater community of life, and the planet. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description today to become a member.